Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into going through the book of Revelation. And we are, we've been in, if, if, if you scroll through the feed, we've been in the chapters two and three of the seven messages to the seven churches for a while. Yeah. And I think we're going to finish that out today, right, Rob? That's the plan. And we're going to go until the well runs dry. So make sure we finish this. How's that? Exactly. That's the plan. And as uh, they said in the A-team, I love when a plan comes together. So let's make uh, and, that happen. Yeah. And by the way, and the well is water because you're Baptist and it can't be anything but water. This is true. Yeah. The, the irony of Baptist preachers who uh, you could preach a sermon on John chapter two. You just can't go to the wedding that serves the wine. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, you know, I, I, it's the same thing, like the, the irony of Baptists and deacons, you have deacons who are, uh, you know, table servants who deliver wine. The deacons just can't drink the wine. Okay. My, sorry, my, my, Jesus can't drink that. I know, sorry, sorry, Jesus. You're not invited to our party. <laughs> that was a really good trick. But can you yes. like make that like Pepsi or something like yeah, that? Yeah. You know, Sprite would be, no, Sprite. Yeah. you know what? Do the a diet Coke version of that. Yeah. A, a strawberry uh, lemonade would be phenomenal. And if you want to put whipped cream in it, that'd be even better. So yeah, I'm just exactly. saying, just saying, yeah, we, we have no problem with trans fats and type two diabetes. Like yeah, that's fine. Yeah. The body's a temple, but uh, just as long as it's not booze. Yeah. So anyway, there's some tongue in cheek there. Let's actually look at, we're going to take another pass through the seven messages. So we're once again, resetting back to chapter two. We've done this the last couple of sequences where we'll just mm-hmm. look at different aspects of what we see in each one of the messages. So now we're going to do that again, back to chapter two, verse one. And let's look at the phrase that each one of uh, each one of these letters contains, it says, let the one who has an ear hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. And so this is something that we see pop up all over the place. This is a, just a weird way of talking. We don't normally speak this way. It doesn't sound like uh, we, we definitely see this kind of phrase in the gospels, but it's not typical in a, just a regular kind of narrative. This is something that we would say is apocalyptic in a way, right? Yes. And I, I like referring to this as an apocalyptic catchphrase. Mm. And you made a comment that it's in the gospels. And I don't think people recognize how the significance of that. Mm-hmm. So the first thing about this catchphrase is that it has roots in the old Testament. So in Ezekiel chapter three, verse 27, Ezekiel says uh, he had just finished uh, doing a parabolic act. A parabolic act means it's an act. You act out a parable instead of saying a parable. Mm-hmm. So Ezekiel has just finished this. And, this, and then it says, quote, but when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you will say to them, thus says the Lord God. He who has an ears will let him let him hear. He who refuses, let him refuse, for they are, are, are a rebellious house. I love that last line. For, uh, by the way, let them refuse because they're a rebellious house anyway. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the prophet Jeremiah says something in Jeremiah 5, verse 21. It says, now hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. So Jesus definitely picks up on this. Uh, and th- and I've mentioned this a few times before, and I don't think the significance of this is actually sticks enough. When Jesus tells a parable, he will often close his parable with, let the one who has an ear, let him hear. And what he's saying is, I know some of you don't understand what I just said, but the one who has ears to hear, ah, that person will hear. And what he ultimately means, which we'll get into a little bit more as we proceed, is that you're going to come to me for an answer. And the best place to go for this is Mark chapter four, which I think obviously is the parable of the sower. I think this is the most significant parable. And notice that the, the parable in Mark chapter four, the parable of the sower, Begins in verse three and it says, listen to this, as the New American Standard translate that. Uh, Vinny, that's the word akuo, right? The verb akuo. Mm-hmm. Listen, mm-hmm. here, it's a command. Notice at the end of the parable, verse nine, and he was saying, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Now, words, the last word is akuo again. It's not the imperative, but it's the form of, of akuo. Now, let him hear. The point of that is the parable is framed, the beginning and the end, first and last words, with hear. The idea is listen carefully. Now, look at verse 10. It says, as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began asking him about the parables. And it was like, what do they mean? In fact, we know that they're asking what they mean. If you skip down to verse 33 of Mark chapter 4, it says, with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And the mm -hmm. word here doesn't mean like audibly to hear it. It means they were able to understand it. Understand, yeah. Yeah. And verse 34, it says, he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Even that idea of hearing, though, it, yeah. it brings me back to the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord yeah. our God, the Lord is one. It's not just hear, yes. like like allow your eardrums to be, to have the vibrations of sound cross over your eardrums. It's like hear and understand and take heed and do this. And and, and has the implication of do this, exactly. Mm -hmm. Go back to Mark chapter 4, verse 10, and his followers, along with the 12, began asking him about the parables. So verse 11, and he began to say to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, they get everything in parables. And then he quotes Isaiah, while seeing they may see and not perceive, while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And this that quote from Isaiah is actually problematic. It's difficult. Matthew renders it, renders it differently. But the point of that actually is this. I'm giving you the explanation for what the kingdom of God is about. In other words, the parables tell you what the, the, the nature of the kingdom. And those outside, they don't understand the nature of the kingdom. And so they have to come to me to get the explanation. And I think that's the key. So basically what we could come to understand is there's going to be some people who aren't going to understand what he's going to be saying. And, and it's not just Mark chapter four. You see this almost all throughout the, the gospels. It seems like almost every time Jesus teaches, he then needs to, he's, he's then addressed by disciples or he has to explain to the disciples what he actually means. Exactly. And the key, and the reason why it's so difficult, remember the parables relay the nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is like, in Matthew's gospel, or the mm -hmm. kingdom of God is like. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. The problem was they didn't understand the kingdom of God because they were expecting a nationalistic king who was going to come and rule over, Rome, over the land and, and kick Rome out. They, they, their understanding of the kingdom simply conflicted with Jesus's understanding of the kingdom. Remember, even John the Baptist questions, are you really the Messiah or not? I mean, I know I leapt in the womb, you know, when I was six months in the womb, when Mary entered the, entered the building. And I know you, all the things that have happened. And I know that when I baptized you, the Holy Spirit descended upon you. And I saw him, I'm like, hey, that's the, that's the Christ. I was told that the Messiah would be the one upon whom the spirit came down. And that was Jesus. I know all that, but I'm in prison. And you don't seem to be doing the Messiah things that I'm expecting. I mean, what are you doing? And Jesus answers, go tell John what what's going on. The deaf are hearing, the blind are seeing, the poor have the good news preached to them. So the problem was that the nature of the kingdom of God is not what they were expecting. So Jesus tells a parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector and the Pharisees and the tax collector is the one that goes home justified. And they're like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it does when you understand the, na the nature of the kingdom. So an a good example of this is in John chapter six now also. So in John chapter six, Jesus is teaching about the Passover and he's the bread of life and all that's fine and dandy. And he feeds the multitudes and Jesus is like, you know, you guys come to me in verse 26 of John six, like, you guys come to me, not because you saw signs, because you ate bread and you were filled, uh, you know? And then he goes on and say, Hey, guess what? You know what? You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you can't enter the kingdom of God. They're like, what, what, is, what does that mean? 
And Jesus is like, look, I'm the bread, verse 41. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they're like, well, wait a minute, what's going on? And she's like, yeah, that's what that's what's going to work. And I'm the bread of life in verse 48. Your father's ate men in the wilderness, but I'm the bread that comes down. And then verse 50, 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Verse 55, my flesh is true food. And my blood is true, is true drink. And they're like, well, what does this mean? Verse 60, many of his disciples were saying like, this is a difficult statement. And verse 61, does this cause you to stumble? And verse 66 now, as a result of, the, of all these things that Jesus is saying, many of the disciples or his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And then Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away also, do you? And Peter says, verse 68, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And I think this puts it all in the context. The point of that is the parables are not understood because the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming didn't fit with what they were expecting. I think there's another reason also, and that is because the nature of the kingdom of God is not what they were expecting. It's not, what, it's not even what they wanted because mm -hmm. Jesus is like, it's going to bring persecution and suffering, the parable of the sower, right? The thorns and the stones. And if you want to know what it means, you need to come to Jesus and follow him regardless of what he says because he has the words of eternal life. And the point then also, we'll move forward here after saying this, and that is the parables of Jesus were also apocalyptic. So we don't think of, oh, when we go to the gospels, Jesus speaks this way. When we go to the book of Revelation, he speaks that way. There's an overlap and a merging of, of all these uh, genres. So when you just say that the parables of Jesus are apocalyptic, help putting that in context to how we've defined apocalypse because we we've said, Oh, the apocalyptic apocalyptic literature means there's a message given by God to an otherworldly being, which is given to a patriarch of old or a figure of old that's given to the people of God who are undergoing persecution. And it's going to be using images and numbers mm -hmm. and animals and, and things falling. And, and these are, these are the elements of, apocalypse and at the end it's going to say the, the end cosmic message says even though there's this war of good and evil at the end persevere because good is going to overcome this evil thing that you're they're experiencing and that's like, would you say yeah. that's that kind of a, a simple simplistic dis description of yeah apocalypse? that's actually really well done that's a, a really good description of the apocalyptic of the genre of apocalypse so what does that mean? And that's going to yeah, be yeah. my question is, how, so if Jesus is speaking, his parables are apocalyptic. What does that mean? Because okay, if good. we've already defined yeah. apocalypse, this is one thing. Well, I didn't see those other things. Okay. So the genre is referring to a writing that is using this style, and it's going to be an otherworldly being gets a vision and hands it on down. It's got apocalyptic imagery of, of symbolic imagery, various kinds of phenomena, earthquakes and signs in the heavens and things like this, maybe including animals as you mentioned, things of that nature. The ultimate message behind it is that God's the one in control, that even though things don't look like God's in control, he really is. And ultimately, good's going to win out, and therefore you need to persevere and endure. That's the genre. So the genre means a writing is using that kind of a template. Maybe mm -hmm. includes some of those things or not all of them or whatever it might be. When I say something is apocalyptic in the sense, what I'm saying is it's revealing the nature of the kingdom, which the genre is, right? The kingdom of God's like this, it looks like Caesar's in power, but really Jesus is in power, right? That's this apocalyptic genre. But Jesus is saying, this is the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom is breaking in now, and it's not what you expected. Mm -hmm. And the best way to say that, which Jesus, that's what he's doing in parables, is it's 
apocalyptic. I don't know it's not necessarily the, the full-on genre, but it's using this apocalyptic language and apocalyptic imagery to convey a truth. So th- does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. More in a in a uh, simplistic, uh, smaller, condensed, I guess I'd say maybe condensed form. Okay. Yep. Okay. That totally makes sense. So one of the features then of that we see in the, the seven messages, which is true to an apocalypse, is like persevere through this stuff is bad right now. It seems bad, but like I said, God is sovereign. God is in control. He's going to take care of his people. And so the, the key phrase that we see in all of the seven messages, uh, they all finish up in the, in this way. They say to the one who overcomes dot, dot, dot. Right. So what is, what do we mean by that? It's this promise that they overcome. What are they overcoming? Well, that's actually the question that we need to unpack as we proceed. And so we may not unpack all of that today. The first thing to note is that each of the seven messages ends with a promise to the one who overcomes. And that promise to the one who overcomes, as we noted earlier, they're fulfilled later on in the book. So that's one of the first points that we want to make as we close up our discussion of the seven messages is the seven messages are vital to the understanding of the rest of the book. In fact, each of the messages ends with a promise to the one who overcomes. And that fulfillment is found later on in the book, whether it's in chapter seven or chapter 21 or chapter 22 whatever it might be. So the book is is neatly tied together and you can't separate the seven messages from the rest of the book. But let's take a look now as we go through each of the seven messages, just briefly looking at this promise to overcome and then be reminded that we need to continue to keep our eyes open for the word overcome as it occurs. Now, again, the problem is a little bit that our English translations don't consistently translate the same word. Nakao is the Greek verb. Uh, It means the one who overcomes, but it can also mean the one who conquers. And so they don't translate it consistently and understandably so. So what I would recommend, really, actually, I wrote a chapter in, the, in my book, Follow the Lamb, on the word overcome. And I listed every example and every time it occurs there, and I would refer you to that. There you can now go look and look up every instance that it occurs, and you can see how your translation uses it. And then begin to figure out how this word is being used. It's a great exercise to read how it's being used as we go through the book. And we'll try to tie on, try that in. We'll try to answer that question a little bit as we finish up this uh, discussion today. And then just as a reminder, when we first started talking about this way back when, and we started to talk about this uh, symbolism of numbers and what mm-hmm. sort of thing, seven is dealing with completion and that sort of thing. So when we look at seven churches, there are literally seven churches that lived in these geographical locations and all that. But the primary idea in addressing these seven churches is not that we're just dealing with seven churches. This is stuff that's going out to all the churches. So even though... Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, we'll, we'll look at the first one. We'll look at Ephesus in a second, but uh, you know, the one who overcomes or conquers, I will grant to eat in the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's not merely for the church Mm -hmm. in Ephesus, all the churches, not just the seven churches, but all the churches in the world can also look at that and say, Oh, that's, that's a promise for the one who overcomes. So we should look at these as universal promises. Uh, Yes, absolutely. In fact, I, I would say two ways. One would be the fact, as you noted, that the seven refers to all, all the churches. And I think it refers to all the churches at all times. So mm-hmm. not just all the churches at, the, at John's day, but all the churches at all times. And then note that what we just discussed, that the promise of the one who, who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church as. Mm-hmm. So each of the seven messages ends it's with plural. this. Listen to the, what the spirit says the church as, plural. So starting in chapter two, verse seven, this is going to be the first church in Ephesus. Uh, they were in danger of losing their, losing their lampstand. And it's promised that uh, to the one who overcomes, I will give to that person to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, I mean, 
already we have garden language and uh, yes. you know Genesis language. Very but good. what, what are good. we what are we seeing here? Yeah, very good. And of course, eating from the tree of life is fulfilled in mm-hmm. chapter twenty-two, mm-hmm. where the tree of life grows on both sides of the river, which is another interesting imagery in and of itself. So the point actually then is, if they endure and they bear fruit for the kingdom, then they're going to eat the fruit that belongs to life eternally. There's a strong likelihood that the tree of life imagery was intended to contrast the Artemis cult, which had functioned in much of the ancient world and was prominent in many ways as much as the imperial cult that, we discussed, that we've discussed deeply. But nonetheless, what was happening was that when they built these temples in honor of a god or a goddess, the religious site was often marked by a sacred tree. And it may be that John's building on that with that imagery of, hey, look, you are the church and the church is the temple of the living God, and it's being marked by a tree. And obviously that goes back to the garden imagery in the book of Genesis, where the garden of Eden was a temple. And obviously at the center of the temple was a tree of life. And the significance of the tree of life being in the center is that in the center is where God dwelt. The mm-hmm. tree of life actually represents the presence of God. Uh, and that's why Revelation 20, 22 says, they're going to eat from the tree of life. And then in verse four, it says, and they will see his face. Ah, it's where God dwells. Hey everyone, we want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access. But we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. All right, next up we have Smyrna, which we've talked about this a little bit before, I think on the last time we went through this, but they were facing some sort of persecution and imprisonment, right? Right, yeah. They were about to face imprisonment and it'll last 10 days be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. So their suffering was imminent, but it hadn't happened uh, yet. So the obvious in- or interesting paradox then is, if the believers in Smyrna are facing persecution to the point of death, don't worry about it because they're going to be rewarded with eternal life. So going on to Pergamum now, man, we're flying through these things. Uh, Pergamum was being tempted to eat at the pagan feasts. And so we read in uh, chapter two, verse 17, I will give to that person of the hidden manna, and I will give to that person a white stone and a new stone and a new name written upon that stone, which no one knows except for the one who receives it. So manna comes, it's, this is Old Testament. This is Exodus language when they're in the wilderness. And it doesn't manna mean like, what is it? Is that how you define it? Like, what is this thing? but why don't is it say hit- that when your wife serves dinner I, uh, you don't, what is you don't ever say that yeah, yeah i'm yeah. lucky i've only said that like once in our marriage where my wife was like this was not good i'm like yeah this was not good one, one yeah, time yeah. it's 17 years we'll take we that. had we had one episode too it's funny yeah uh but most times she knocks out of the park but yeah, she's great yeah my what, wife. yeah your wife is great too yes uh what what is the significance of about about being hidden manna it may allude we don't know to the fact that remember manna was put in the ark of the covenant so the, the ark that was in the temple, but the ark was captured when the temple was destroyed in 586 BC. And there's all kinds of legends out there as to what actually happened. Some think, oh, they smuggled the ark out before the, ba- before the Babylonians conquered the temple. So they, the ark actually is hidden here or it's hidden there. Or it's hidden uh, elsewhere. Do you, you know say, what's been found, right? 
yeah, yeah. It was Indiana. found in the 1940s. It's it's in yeah, a, it's in a it, museum. Indiana found it, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Jones, too. Yeah, Dr. Jones. Yeah. And okay, there's sorry. no J in Latin. So yeah, <laughs> there is no we, J in Latin. Yeah, yes. That's, that's how we got the third it. episode. So, yes. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay. Very cool. Uh, anyway, so uh, there's a tradition in the book of Maccabees that Jeremiah hid the ark in a, in a cave. Uh, there's another version that says the angel took it and uh, will and put it in an undisclosed location. There's all, there's all kinds of traditions out there. So it may be then the idea that it's hidden manna because it's waiting for the Messiah to reveal it. Hmm. That's speculation. We just simply don't know the answer. Okay. Uh, what about the white stone that we read about? Yeah. So again, the white stone, there's a number of different suggestions as to what it means. And again, it's just... To, to the one who overcomes, I'm going to give some of the hidden manna, and I'm going to give them a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. So the stone, there's a number of suggestions. I think that the best suggestion is that it refers to a stone that's given when you're invited to a banquet. And so when you attend a banquet, the invitation is given out, and these, you have these stones, these tablets, which could be a pebble or a small stone or whatever it might be. And that's your ticket to get in. And so I, I think that's probably the best solution because the context is you're going to eat from manna. You're going to, it's going to be this eschatological banquet or this end times banquet. You're, you've been invited to the dinner and guess what? I've got a white stone for you. Now remember the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed, they don't ever get these white stones. They've never had one of these. So this is not just, Hey, Oh, guess what? You got a ticket to the banquet. Like you get to go to the ball. Like, no, you get to go to the ball. I mean, think about Think of a homeless person in San Francisco, for example, being invited to the opera. I was like, you don't get to go to operas. Mm -hmm, and all of a sudden mm -hmm. now they have a ticket to the opera. It's like, oh, that's kind of what the idea is. Honestly, the irony of this, I, I, that you brought this up. So a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I, we went to San Francisco uh, to see Les Mis because oh, yeah, yeah. it was, I mean, it was just yeah. playing. And it, it was interesting because the, you know, if you followed the homeless situation in California, it's, it's an epidemic. Mm -hmm. Um, and San Francisco is just flooded with homeless people on the streets. And it's amazing because the Orpheum Theater where we went, we went to Hamilton a couple of years ago. Like we've been there a number of times. Yeah. Literally, you have this great historic theater in that whole area. You have the San Francisco Symphony up the street. Yeah. You have the it's Opera House. Venice, yeah, yeah, it's, it's off Venice. Yeah. yeah. And you have these great facilities that are beautiful theaters are, that you are. have yeah. some of the best performers and the musicians in the world performing in these places. And outside of the streets are homeless people everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And it, like, so I'm just, I'm, I'm sitting in that thinking like, like I had to walk through them coming from my suburban house to people who literally live outside these mm -hmm. facilities on the other side of the wall to where these people, they're some of the best musicians in the world and performers are performing right. and they never are going to be able to get in there. Exactly. It's just, exactly. A, it, I don't know. It's just, it's word picture that I lived out a couple of weeks ago. So yeah. And that think of that word picture, just a segue for just a second of, uh, Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The rich man's in this fine home and Lazarus is sitting at his gate longing to eat what fall, the crumbs that falls from his, from his table. Mm -hmm. And it says he, he lived in luxury and he had a banquet every single day. No one has yeah. a banquet every single day, but this no. rich man did. So that's kind of the same imagery of the homeless person in San Francisco. And well, you have to walk by them in San Francisco because you can't park anywhere near well, theaters. and that's what I'm thinking. Like yeah. we, we park in a parking garage because we got to be, yep. be safe, you know, underground parking garage and we go to a nice restaurant and if we have mm. food left over, like, yeah, the people are hoping to get some of the stuff that we might have left over from our awesome meal that we're too full to eat because we're stuffed. And so you could give it to someone on the side of the road who then I'm going to go sit in my luxury, you know, seat and watch a play with. It's just yeah. interesting to see how, what, what aspect of that life we're living and, uh, you know, who, where's Lazarus on the road there on, right you know, McAllister or whatever street I was walking on. 
So we talked about this, I think the first pass through of the letters, but we said how the center of the seven passages or messages, it points to Thyatira, that, that yeah. middle passage. Yeah. And note that this is the only church of the seven messages in which the promise includes to the one who overcomes, I'll give this to the one who overcomes, I'll give this. Well, the message of Thyatira includes to the one who overcomes and the one who keeps my works until the end. And there's this added stress on works that we've discussed a few times already also. So the, the ones who persevere there, they're faithful. He's going to give to them authority over the nations mm. and they shall rule them with a rod of iron. Uh, and then we see this phrase that we'll see in some of the messages as I also have received something, right? So in here, it's, he yeah. received authority yeah, from his father. Yeah. Yes. All right. So again, remember that this is the center. This is the center of the seven messages. So the central promise is the focal point of it. And most likely the promise of the one who rules alludes to Psalm chapter two, verses eight and nine. And I know we referred to it before, but let's look it up again. Anyways, Psalm two is critical to the New Testament. It's a messianic Psalm, widely believed to be messianic. We referred to this already. Psalm one is Psalm one and Psalm two are usually thought to be like the gateway Psalms. As you enter the book of Psalms, realize that the wise one is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord and meditates on a day and night. That's Psalm number one. The wicked are not, they're like chaff and the wind blows them away. Then Psalm number two begins with the nations are in an uproar, verse one, and the kings there take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one. Mm -hmm. And the word for anointed is Messiah in Hebrew or Christ in Greek. This is clearly the king that's being described here. And it says, the one who sits in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. He'll speak to them in his anger and terror. And he says, but in verse six, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the, of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten thee. Verse eight now. And ask of me, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son so that he may not be angry and you perish in the way. Now, we might stop and go, okay, that sounds kind of mad, like God's being. He's going to rule them with a rod of iron. But if we read this through the lens of Jesus, if we read this through the lens of the New Testament, the way Jesus rules is by dying for them. So Psalm 2 comes along in this context of, ancient warfare and ancient tribalism and we're threatened and we're in danger but guess what our king is better than your kings and we're going to win and all that good stuff but the way it comes to fruition the way it's fulfilled is in jesus and as we'll get to as we move along in chapters four and five which we'll do in a couple of weeks and we're going to we're going to pick up the pace by the way we're going to do chapters four and five in, in one one week but what we're going to notice is jesus is the lamb 27 times in the book of revelation he's only referred to as the lion once in the book of revelation so the way he rules is through love even though this kind of comes across harshly yeah what's interesting is if we've already read chapter one if i've heard chapter one as a hearer mm -hmm. i already know that you know to him who loves us has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom right. we're already a kingdom exactly and then i hear that oh i'm not only a kingdom but i'm actually going to rule with him exactly All right, so not that's the next point now that's this so Psalm 2 is applied throughout the New Testament to Jesus, and it's one of the most important Psalms that we can come, mm -hmm. come across. But in this passage, and by the way, it's applied to Jesus twice in the book of Revelation. Psalm 2 is applied to Jesus in chapter 12, verse 5, and in chapter 19, verse 15. Jesus is the one who's going to rule over the nations, pay homage to the Son, right? That, that's the, it's about Jesus. 
But in this passage, it's applied to the church. And it says, I will give them authority over the nations and they shall rule them with a rod of iron. And so this now brings up a very significant point that we have to understand to understand the New Testament and of course the book of Revelation. And that is we rule with Christ. We could say this a lot of different ways. We rule with him. We're going to get to the message in, to the church in Laodicea where the promise at the end of the seven messages is, if you overcome, I'll grant you the right to sit down with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Ah, we're going to sit down on the throne with, the, with Christ on the father's throne. But also the idea of that we rule with Christ could also be understood that Christ rules through us. Remember, God created Adam and Eve and said, let them rule over the creation. And so this is the idea that we are ruling. So let's go to the Gospel of Luke, for example. Now. Well, actually, can I say something real quick Please. Uh, while, you go, while you go to Luke? This is also Daniel chapter seven, where you have yes. the, the, the one like a son of man who comes to the ancient of days, and he's the one who's given dominion and glory in a kingdom. But then when you read it again, yes. it's it, it, then it's the, the people who are the ones who actually have this dominion and glory and kingdom and are exercising that authority. Yeah. In fact, in Daniel seven, let's go ahead and go there for a second that, that you bring it up. Verse 18, it says, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom mm -hmm. and possess the kingdom for all ages. So they will become the kings. And so that's, so let's go down to Luke chapter 22. And this is a great passage. And I'm going to try to keep it simple, keep it, keep it uh, brief. But this is just great sermon stuff right here too. So without getting into all the sermon stuff, Jesus is the last supper. He's told the disciples, given them the, what we call communion and all that good stuff. The disciples began disputing with one another. I think it's hilarious, by the way. I see I'm, see I'm getting off course. Here we go. But Luke 22, Jesus gives them communion. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. The very next verse, 24 of Luke chapter 22 says, there arose a dispute amongst them as to which one of them was the greatest. And then Jesus says, you know what, guys? Seriously, right? It's hilarious. He said, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. But those who have authority over them are called, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But that is not the way it's going to be with you. The one who is greatest among you should become the youngest and the leader shall be like the servant. And then he goes on and he says, Verse uh, 20, 29, just as my father granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And I think that refers back to the promise of the church in Pergamum. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so guess what? The Gentiles rule this way, but not so with you. And in fact, I'm going to give you a kingdom and you're going to rule not the way the Gentiles do. And that goes back to the conversation at the beginning that the nature of the kingdom is not what they expected. They were expecting a messianic kingdom with Jesus sitting on the throne. And uh, uh, James and John come up to Jesus and say, hey, can we sit on your right and on your left when you enter the, you know, when you're enthroned? And Jesus is like, you don't know what you're asking for because he's enthroned on the cross. Sorry, that's been given to somebody else. Uh, and so I think this is a very significant point for us to understand. Uh, verse at the end of chapter two, verse 28, it says, and I will give him the morning star. Mm. Uh, what does that mean? Cause oftentimes morning star language gets associated with like Satan. Uh, yeah. But it's also associated with Jesus. Numbers 24 verse 17 is probably the context that says, I see him not, but not now uh, I see him, uh, but not near a star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel uh, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. The star, of course, the morning star is a reference to the, to the uh, planet Venus, which in the ancient world, they didn't understand why, but Venus would appear just after sunset and kind of goes up and down in the, in the Western sky. And then all of a sudden it appears in the Eastern sky 
just before sunrise. And so the morning star, when you see Venus arising, you know the sun's not far behind it. So I think the suggestion is that Jesus is both the beginning of the coming of the kingdom of God mm. and that the sunrise is coming soon. Mm. We also see in the very end of Revelation uh, chapter 22, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things that, for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Exactly, so he exactly. refers to himself then yeah, at, yeah. at the end of the book. Yep. Uh, we get to Sardis chapter three. So those who overcome uh, the church of Sardis, they're a promise that they will be dressed in white garments. And I will never erase that person's name from the book of life, which I'm assuming the garments and being in the book of life, uh, there's a connection there maybe, right? Well, there might be, uh, as I, I mentioned it before, I have spent a lot of time on clothes in mm -hmm. the book of revelation and I haven't figured out the riddle yet. Like why these clothes, why those clothes? So I'm not sure that, that we have an answer as to what is going on with, with the clothing, but there's actually three blessings in this particular promise. The first is white clothes. Uh, and it looks back to chapter three, verse four, where it says, there are a few in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. This suggests then the idea, it's been thought at least, and it probably makes the most sense, the idea of a Roman uh, triumph. When, when the Romans came victorious at the end of a war and the most famous Roman triumph is actually at the end of the Jewish war in 70 AD when they conquered Jerusalem and they, they bring slaves and everybody else back into, into Rome. The military comes walking through this procession in the city of Rome, and the citizens are wearing pure white togas as accompanying the, the victor. And I think that's probably the imagery here that, that they are going to be the ones who are going to be wearing white. They are going to be the ones who are victorious. But I also wonder if there's a little bit of an allusion to Genesis here in Eden, that they will walk with me in white. So in the book of Leviticus, without going into too much detail, I'm going to try my best. Here we go. Leviticus 26 gives the covenant promises for the blessings. If you obey my covenant, these are the blessings. And the blessing is going to be like rain in good season, your threshing floor, there'll be lots of grapes in the grape harvest. And you're also going to have peace. And I'm going to send your enemies away. And then the promise in Leviticus 26 climaxes, the, the promise of blessings, climaxes with verse 11. Moreover, I'll make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. Verse 12. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Now, this is a really important covenant promise, Leviticus 26, verses 11 and 12. It's quoted at the end of Revelation 21. And in Revelation 21, verse 3 and verse 7, quotes this covenant promise. I will make my dwelling among you. That's the new Jerusalem. And I'll be your God and you'll be my people. But it also says, and I will walk among you. Mm -hmm. And the verb for walk in Leviticus 26, 12 is actually the same word used in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 that God used to walk in the midst of Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. So Genesis chapter three, uh, verse eight says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of Eden in the cool of the day. And I think it is legit that Leviticus is making an allusion, Leviticus 26, 12, to the garden presence of God that, hey guys, if you obey my covenant, I'm gonna restore my garden presence amongst you. You know how I used to walk with Adam and Eve? I'm gonna walk with you again. And obviously that becomes fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. And um, one quick, quick segue, and that is Paul actually quotes the same passage in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, and says, you hmm. are the temple of the living God, just as it is said, I will be your God and I will dwell among you. And so Paul's quoting this passage to say, oh, guess what? It's true. It's fulfilled in the new Jerusalem, but the promise has already begun to be fulfilled in the church. 
And Paul mm. obviously applies this to the Holy Spirit coming now as a foretaste. God dwells with us and he walks among us. Obviously, you see Jesus himself being you know, the dwelling of God among men and tabernacling amongst us as well. Right, but the other part of this now, so this is the first promise. The first promise is that they're going to have white clothes and they'll walk with me. The white garments suggest moral purity. So let's go to chapter four, Revelation chapter four, verse four, and see white. And, and by the way, we did a long discussion on numbers and the significance of numbers. There's actually a lot to be said for the significance of colors that apocalyptic literature, including the book of Revelation, uses colors. We're not going to get into all the details, but white, of course, is one of them. So uh, in Revelation four, verse four, the 24 elders are sitting clothed in white garments. Mm-hmm. And so clearly suggesting moral purity. In chapter 6, verse 11, the souls under the altar. We're going to get into all this good stuff here in the next several weeks coming up now. So the souls under the altar in verse 9, chapter 6, verse 9. And they were they had been slain. And in verse 10, they're like, how long, O Lord, until you bring justice? And in verse 11, it says, and there was given each one of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. Ah, then we'll skip down to chapter 7 now. We'll get to this great multitude that we'll discuss, this great multitude which no one could count. They were from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. And it says in verse 9, Revelation 7, verse 9, uh, they, they were clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Now, what's very significant is verse 14, because verse 13, one of the elders says to John, like, hey, by the way, those in white robes, who are they? And John's like, I have no idea. You tell me who they are. And, and he says, oh, these are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation. This is verse 14. These are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Hmm. Ah, so, and obviously the imagery there of white garments coming from the washing of blood. All right, then finally in chapter 16, and this is the Armageddon passage, Revelation 16, verse 15. So, and we'll discuss this passage in some detail, of course. I'm sure we'll discuss it a number of different times. But the Armageddon passage is Revelation 16, verses 13 through 16. So they're going to, you know, these unclean spirits look like frogs. And they're going to come out in verse 14. They're going to gather them together for the war, the great day of God, the Almighty. Verse 16, they gather them together to the place that in Hebrew is called Harmageddon or Armageddon, depending on what manuscript tradition you're going to rely on. But look at verse 15. And almost every translation in English puts verse 15 in parentheses. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he won't walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And I bring that up here, even though it doesn't say anything about white garments, I bring it up here because it's reference to garments, but note it's in the middle of this Armageddon passage. And the point of that is, if you want white garments, you need to persevere. Mm. You need to overcome. And obviously, by the way, Armageddon is not a battle fought against the nations, because if it's a battle fought about by nations against the nations, why are the church, why are the Christians being told, hey, by the way, you need to persevere? and keep your garments with you in the midst of this Armageddon passage. The point then is, white clothes are the clothes given to the ones who overcome, who are faithful. They're made white in the blood of the Lamb, and it's a symbol of a triumph at the end of a military victory. And of course, the military victory is won by dying, not by killing. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel, is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. The second promise of the church in Sardis is that he's not going to erase their name from the book of life. And the book of life plays a really significant role in the book of Revelation. I think we're going to get chapters four and five in a few weeks. 
I suspect that the scroll in the right hand of the father that Jesus takes and opens up. And if you know the book of Revelation, you know that it has seven seals and he breaks the seals in chapter six and something takes place on the earth and things of that nature. I think that scroll is likely the book of life. That's, I was going to ask you if, yeah, if that's yeah. your connection there. I think it is. I think it likely is the book of life. We're told in chapter 20, verse 15, if anyone's name has not been found written in the book of life, they're thrown in like a fire. And then in chapter 21, verse 27, it says, the one whose names have been written in the book of life in the Lamb are able to enter into the new Jerusalem. Now, the primary background for the Old Testament uh, book of life is, is likely Daniel 12. And so let's look at a couple references here. So Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2, which is actually the only Old Testament reference to a resurrection of the righteous and of the wicked, by the way. The, I'll say it again. The only Old Testament reference to the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked is found in Daniel chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2. And it says, verse 1, At that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there'll be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. And then verse 2 goes on to describe the resurrection. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but those to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So there's your reference to the book of life in, in Daniel chapter 12. But we also see it in Psalm 87, verse 6. And I'll, I'm going to do my best to re put these uh, references in the show notes so that you can have them there. Psalm 87, verse 6. The Lord will count when he registers the peoples. This one was born there. So here's this imagery of this, this registry of peoples that were God's registering all of God's people and seems to imply that they're going to do so in a book. It's also found in Isaiah chapter four, verse three. Do you want to read Isaiah four, verse three? Yeah. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. So there's a recording of the names. So Daniel 12 becomes the names in the book of life. But again, we have this idea in Psalm 87 and Isaiah four. Now the erasing of names, this is what's intriguing here, because it raises all kinds of questions that we're not going to we're not going to solve. Um, but the erasing of names comes from Exodus 32, verses 32 and 33. And it says this, but now, if you will forgive their sins, and if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Okay, and raises all kinds of interesting questions. And then also I, Psalm 69, verse 28. Uh, do you want to read that one? Yeah. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. So this is really interesting now. And it raises all kinds of questions. Can people lose their salvation? Does everybody's name start in the book of life? And then if they don't choose Jesus, they're erased. Or if they are only the people who choose Jesus, their names are in the book of life. And then if they fall away, are their names erased? You know what? We're not going to solve that. <laughs> That's simply not what the text is, is describing. There's just this imagery of, the righteous are the ones whose names are in the book of life, and I'm not going to erase their names. Whether your names can be erased or not is simply not a question that, that John was probably uh, asking. But the idea of in the Greco-Roman world also was that city, um, cities had a list of citizens and like this public registry book. And if you're convicted of a serious crime, felons in a modern day America where you can't get certain privileges and you can't get certain housing and certain, you're not allowed, if you're a felon, you can't get um, food stamps, things like that. Well, there are names in the ancient, in the Greco-Roman world, if you committed a crime, your name would be blotted out from this book. So in Athens, we actually have, we know of citizens who were sentenced to death and had their names erased from the list of citizens before their execution. So that may be the, the case, but here's what's important now, and that's this. So go to Revelation chapter three, 
verse three, and I'm gonna, I'm just going to translate this on the fly myself. So it's kind of a, a wooden translation. So Revelation chapter three, verse three, and I want you to compare. This is going to be my translation now, not the New American Standard, or whatever, because English translations don't bring this nuance out. So here we go. Revelation chapter three, verse three says, now remember, therefore, what you have um, received and heard and keep it and repent. If you don't wake up, I'm going to come like a thief. And I will certainly, and you will certainly not know at what hour I will come upon you. You will definitely not have the knowledge as to what hour I'm going to come upon you. So this, uh, the statement of certainty. Now, that's chapter three. Actually, actually, let me ask you because yeah. you said I'll definitely not know. You translate it that way because yeah, you I, will I, definitely I, not know. So, well, yeah. so is it emphatic like that? Yes, it is. And that it, the Greek is ume, which is the two okay. Greek words yep. for no. And when when both Greek words for no appear together, it's like you will certainly not know. Okay, because that's interesting I'm, from a nuance standpoint, because I'm reading it in the ESV actually is very similar to what you said. I'll, I'll oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. So it says, uh, remember then what you have, oh, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So it's it seems more just like a warning. Right. Uh, whereas you're, I will de- you will definitely not know exactly is that's way more emphatic and it, whereas this is just like oh okay this is more a cause and effect over here exactly and then the american standard says you will not know at what hour i will come to you exactly all right now contrast that with verse five so the one who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and i will certainly not erase his name from the book of life so there's the contrast and i was if you don't repent in verse three then you will certainly not know what hour I'm coming to you. But now in verse five, if you do repent, the one who overcomes, I will certainly not erase his na- your name or his name from. Yeah, the, and I'm reading the ESV the and life. NRSV both. Yes, exactly. It, it, it doesn't come across that way. It, it says, uh, it, it will say, uh, I will never blot his name out or yeah. NRSV. Uh, well, never is I better. will not blot it out. Yeah, yeah. Never it, is and a this is more I, emphatic, but yeah, it's better than says, I will not erase. Yeah, and that same thing. NRSV says, "I will not blot out your name," which is just—I don't know—you you lose a lot of that uh, intensity. Yeah, you do. You lose the, it's, and I don't know why a translation. That, that's not a hard thing to do, just to bring out mm-hmm. the stress that's clearly in the text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh, interesting. Okay, it it also says, uh, "Those who overcome in Sardis are also promised, and I will confess their name before my Father and before His angels." Yeah. So here's the third promise, and the promise is, "I will confess their name." In Matthew 10, verse 32, Jesus promised, promises, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my father who is in heaven. So this is certainly, I think, an allusion to the final judgment. And the implication then is clear that uh, if you overcome, guess what? I'm not going to brought your name out from the book of life. And in fact, I'm going to confess your name before my father and before his holy angels. Does that mean that there's some sort of aspect where the angels are involved in the judgment? Because I th- I'm even thinking like, is it Hebrews or where does it talk about how we're going to be the ones who judge angels? Mm, yes, that's, that's correct. It's the book of Hebrews. Yeah. The answer is apparently, right? I mean, I'd say yes. We, According to John have, in Revelation, exactly. the Hebrews are involved in judgment. But uh-huh. yeah, yeah. One of the things that you have to be careful about is drawing this great theology of what's about to come. Simple statement here or simple mm-hmm. statement there. So all of a sudden now we draw this, oh, here's what happens to judgment day. God's there and all the angels are around. It's like, well, apparently so, but yeah, what matters is that we're standing before the throne and yeah. we're standing because who can stand is going to say in, in Revelation chapter six, who can stand? Ah, oh, the ones who can stand are are indeed going to be moving forward and that's going to be good. Yeah. So that's what yeah. matters. Okay. Yep. Uh, we move to Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, 
to the overcomer in Philadelphia, it's uh, it's that Christ will make them a mm-hmm. pillar in the temple of my God, and I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my name, my new name. Yeah. yeah. All right. So very significant. The church or the people of God who are faithful and who overcome are being described as temples. Hmm. So we know that Jesus is the temple of God, but we know that Paul will often say, you are the temple of God, whether it's Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, and elsewhere. You are the temple of God. And now John's saying, not only that, you're going to be a, a pillar in the temple of my God. And in the ancient world, pillars are where names were inscribed on them. Usually the name of like whoever built the temple or built whatever important people, things of that nature. Well, guess what? Not only is the name going to be inscribed on it, but you're going to be the temple or you're going to be the pillar itself. So they're promised that they're going to be pillars and John's, it's going to be the pillar of the temple. And the temple is going to be like the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem. Now in Revelation chapter 21, John's going to be told, come, I'm going to show you the bride. We're going to talk about it later, but seeing and hearing, he sees one thing and mm-hmm. he hears something else, or he hears one thing and he sees something else. And we'll discuss that as we, as we proceed. John's told, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And I turned and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. So the city is the bride. The bride is the city, but the city is a temple. And I think that's, what's very significant here. So in verse 12, there's uh, these promises that they're going to have three names written yeah. on them. Why three is that? I, we, we should assume three is significant, right? Well, yeah. So actually a very good, Vinny. When you're reading things in the book of Revelation, you're supposed to count. When it comes up with three, you're like, oh, that's three mm-hmm. because it's divine. And obviously the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, all that kind of good stuff. So very good. So uh, the, the three names are the name of my God, which we'll get into in more detail later. But in chapter seven, the 144,000 are going to have the seal of God on their foreheads. In chapter 14, the 144,000 appear again. Mm -hmm. And it says, I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And within the 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. So I think this corresponds to the church in Philadelphia. They're going to have the name of my God, well, written on their foreheads. But they're also going to have the name of the city of my God. And I'm just going to briefly allude to this now, but this will become a major influence when we get onto the book of Revelation later. a major influence as we proceed through the book of Revelation, and that is John's use of the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 have this, what we call this end times temple. And you you could do a really tragic Amazon search on Ezekiel's temple, and all these books are going to come up like, oh, Ezekiel's temple, it's not been built yet, and here's what's going to happen, and the Jews are going to build it soon, and they get the red heifer. It's like, oh, this is not what Ezekiel's temple is about any bit whatsoever. But um, Ezekiel's temple, spoiler alert, it's the gospel of John. When Jesus says, mm-hmm. I am the temple of God, it's uh, using the image of, Eze- of Ezekiel's temple. So in Ezekiel 48, the end of the, chap- end of the book now, uh, the name of the temple and the name of the city, it says, this is the last verse in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 48, verse 35. The city shall be 18,000 cubits round and r- roundabout, and the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. Mm. Ah, you're going to have the name of the city of my God, and the name of that city is going to be the Lord is there. And of course, as we alluded to already, Leviticus 26 and uh, Genesis 3 um, and all that good stuff, that the name of the city is the Lord is there because the essence of the new Jerusalem is I will dwell among them. I, I was going to say, so, God and you'll be my people. 
or the word was made flesh and dwelt among them. Yeah. Tabernacle among them. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And, and so, and that's very significant because it's not just something future. And when, when I teach on the book of revelation and I'm teaching on the new Jerusalem, I'm like, look, let's note that this is the future hope. So the reason why we endure the present, the reason why we have hope at funerals, the reason why we have hope during tragedy, the reason why we have hope during pain, the reason why we have hope in it, that injustice is going to be overcome is because we know that God will ultimately bring about true lasting eternal justice. So we look at the book of Revelation as this great hope that is before us, hmm. but we can't forget the fact that it has already begun. Jesus himself was the temple, and then he breathed on us, or the disciples, and sent the Spirit, and because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we also become temples of God in the present. So it's not just something that we look forward to as something that's going to happen in the future, but it's something that's already begun in the present. And the implications of that, I think, are, are profound, but we won't get into all the details of that. All right, the third one is, I'm going to write on them, my new name. So when we go to Revelation chapter 19, it describes Jesus's return. So again, the three names are going to be the name of my God, which is the seal of God in the forehead of the, of the 144,000, the name of the city of my God, which is the Lord is there, Ezekiel 48. And now I'm going to write on them, my new name. Well, in Revelation 19, it describes the return of Jesus. And it says, I saw, verse 11, I saw heaven being opened. And there's a white horse. And the one who sat on it is called faithful and true. All right, verse 12, his eyes like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he's got a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. Mm-hmm. Ah, my new name. Now, in the ancient world, to know someone's name was to have authority or power over them. So note the demons will come to Jesus and say, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. And they're trying to actually assert authority over Jesus. And Jesus will say, be quiet. Or later on, Jesus will say, what is your name? And the demon will say, my name is Legion, for we are many. That's Mm -hmm. Jesus exercising authority over them. The demons try to exercise authority over Jesus, but it doesn't work. But note Jesus's name, well, no one knows except himself. Well, actually, guess what? If you go down to verse 16 of Revelation 19, it says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Mm. So there's two ways to understand Revelation 19, verse 12. One is to say the name that's written on him that no one knows is Yahweh. That, that, that's one way of looking at it. That it's, this, it's the divine name, the name that a Jew cannot utter. They, they cannot speak the name, the ineffable name, the unspeakable name. That's possible. Or it could also be it's the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which is applied to Jesus, and obviously in the Old Testament, it's applied to God the Father. So nonetheless, here's the great point. Those in Philadelphia are going to have God's name written on them, and it's the name of the city of my God. What a great promise. Mm. We finally get to Laodicea. We're going to finish. We're going to finish. And so to the one who overcomes, Jesus will give to that person to sit down with me on my throne, just as... I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. All right. And there's only one throne. This isn't multiple thrones here. Okay. Now note that the overcome. And so we asked the question, like, what does it mean to overcome? And Mm -hmm. we haven't answered that question yet. There's two questions we have to answer. What does it mean to overcome? And secondly, what is it that we're overcoming? Mm -hmm. And those questions are often not well-defined. And I think we need to be really careful with them. And and I would even, I would even, uh, put it in a different order. I would say, okay. uh, what did Jesus overcome and how did he overcome it? Okay. Yeah, that's good. But I, I would flip it. Yeah. That's how, well, that's how we begin to answer the questions. Yes. Yeah. Those, the, the two questions of what does it mean to overcome and what mm-hmm. are we overcoming are yeah. answered by, well, how did Jesus overcome? Yeah. And note that Jesus, it says here, 
that if you overcome as I overcame, and the Greek is like just as, or in the same way, mm -hmm. in the same way that I overcame. Now, I'm not going to give you the spoiler alert. So I'm not going to tell you the answer to the question. You might know, Vinny, but to the listeners, the answer is going to be in chapter five. We're going to find how Jesus overcomes, but we're not going to look at that, at that right now. But note, if we overcome the way he did, then we're going to sit down with him on his throne, just as he overcame and sat down with the father on his throne. Now, this one big throne, and we're all like sitting on everybody's lap. <laughs> Jesus is sitting on the father's throne, and now we're sitting on his throne with him. This, this is sometimes Christians, especially you know, Protestants have problems with this, and that is it's almost language of deification. Theosis is an orthodox way of saying that we become divine in some, in some way. And what we mean by theosis is not we become like the eternal God of the, of the Trinity. It's like, no, no, that's not what it's saying. What's saying is that what's true of God in many ways is true of us also. Now, not all things. We don't become perfect. Obviously, our sins are, are taken away, but we don't become all-knowing. Uh, we don't become omnipresent, or we, but we rule with God. So Psalm 2, which is applied to Jesus, pay homage to the Son, is applied to us. And now Jesus is saying, I'm sitting on my throne, and guess what? I'm going to let you sit on that same throne. So, And this is no different yeah. than uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 language, when yes. Adam and Eve are made in the image of God. Yes. Like, it, it's not exactly. talking about the, the big, we'll use a big term and I'll flesh it out. The big term is ontological, meaning okay. like who what someone is, what, what, being, yeah. what makes someone them, right? Mm -hmm. Not just as an individual, but just as like a species. So ontologically, what makes a human being a human being is we have material, we have immaterial, we're functional, we're rational. We think about what we're thinking about. That's different than a rock that just contains minerals mm -hmm. and has no personhood, right? It, right. The, the, the ontology of a rock is just minerals where right. the ontology, what makes a human a human is, a, is those things. And so when you look at uh, uh, Genesis chapter one in the image of God, they were created in, it's not saying that they are now divine. Like it's just, there's something in our ontology. It's still different than God. We're not God, right. but there's something that is, there's a similarity in this case, I would argue being the image of God, they were reflecting Yahweh to the world as they ruled. So it's, it's actually right. like very connected to this uh, concept as well. Yeah. And I don't think any Protestant is going to have a problem with at all with what you just said, the way you mm -hmm. just said it. They're going to have a problem with the way I would say it. And that is mm -hmm. the way that I'm saying it is the fact that titles and attributes of God are being applied yeah. to us. Mm -hmm. Although I would affirm the way you have said it is correct. Mm -hmm. I think that there's just more to it. And that is mm -hmm. we rule with God in uh, God's stead as Adam and Eve were intended, intended to rule. Now, one last yeah. thought, and that's this. As the seventh of the seven messages, as the last of the seven messages, it clearly has some importance because it's the last one. And it says, if you overcome and sit down, I'll, I'll let you sit down with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Mm. If we endure, we will reign with him. Now, the, I, I said one last thought, but I'm a preacher, so I get more than one last thought because that's just the way it works. One last thought. It's also, it's also your podcast. Yeah, yeah that's, well, it's our podcast, right? Um, so I'm getting close to the end. It means I'll be done soon. And soon is like, well, Jesus is coming soon. It's maybe mm -hmm, soon mm -hmm. in that sense too. We, I've, we've pointed out the fact that the seven messages are integral part of the entire book of Revelation. And I think it's really important. I think we've laid a good foundation. Obviously, I think we've had a deep foundation. But notice that what happens in chapter four, verse one now. So chapter three ends with, if you overcome, 
I'll let you sit down with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And then the very next scene is the I rapture. I looked and behold a door. Yeah, don't go there, Vinny. <laughs> right. uh, I looked and behold a door was standing open in heaven. And immediately, verse two, I was in the spirit and behold a throne was standing in heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, the very throne that we're promised to sit on mm-hmm. now segues into the throne of God and the father sitting on his throne. So clearly chapter three and chapter four are intimately interrelated there. And now we'll get into the, the, the cosmic vision. So what we're going to do now is we got a, an interview with, I think, the premier biblical scholar coming up next week on the book of Revelation. He's, he's a phenomenal individual, phenomenal human being, mm-hmm. a wonderful teacher, and, a, and I think he's the leading scholar on the book of Revelation. And we're just going to say, okay, hey, listen, we just finished the seven messages here. Help us understand what we might have missed and fill us in whatever we're going to fill in. So it'll be a little bit of review really good. And then we're going to springboard to say, okay, help us understand what's going to happen next after this. Then you and I will do chapter four and five in one week. That's our goal, Vinny. One week, we're going to do chapters four and five and lay the foundation for the throne room scene. And mm-hmm. chapters four and five lay the foundation for everything that follows as we get into the heavenly vision. Uh, and then we'll bring in another biblical scholar and a couple of weeks after that to discuss what it means that God's sitting on a throne. If he's sitting on a throne, it's it's not just a, the throne of a king, but the king was also the divine judge. And so what does it mean that God's the divine judge in this, what we call a courtroom scene where we enter before the courtroom there, and then we'll springboard in to the seven seals of chapter six after that. Uh, And then we have another biblical scholar coming on after that. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's going to be awesome stuff. So cool. Finally graduated from chapters two and three, heading into chapter four and five. Yeah. You you call it the throne room scene. Yeah. Would you say that this is the centerpiece of revelation i always view this as like the i don't know this is like the hub of the whole book it is it is i'll tell you a story we'll save it for our next episode for the episode that we do in chapter four and five uh, with that but absolutely it is vital to the message of what's going on to understand the throne of chapter the throne room scene in chapter four and five yeah awesome great hey fun stuff finally graduated once in my life everyone continue reading ahead continue reading through the book and we'll catch you one next time to thank you for joining us on today's podcast and we would love for you to share the work of determined truth with others please follow this podcast and give a review on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcasts your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people